welcome to Embargoed, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I'm here, as always, with my friend, colleague, and co-host, COVID-free, we hope just confirmed, Mr. Timothy O'Toole. How are you, Tim? I'm very well, Brian, now that I have waited forever to get my COVID <laughs> test, but but finally got out of there and, and on to more fun things like this podcast. Happy yes. holidays. Happy holidays to you. Happy holidays to everybody out there. We're recording this uh, December 17. This is going to go up sometime, likely right before Christmas. Uh, and this will be the last episode from us this calendar year. Um, and so as we tease the last time, this is going to be, we are going to stick with our year-end top stories of the year format that we did last year. So this is going to be top sanctions and export controls and international trade stories of 2021. Um, and so, um, we, we have a lot to cover. We're going to do this lightning round style like we did last year as well. Um, so we have a lot of ground to cover. Um, and, uh, so we won't delay. We're going to jump right into it in a second before we do the normal, um, the normal warnings at the outset here that we're not giving legal advice. Uh, we're not sharing any confidential information and any and all views and comments that you hear are solely those of me and Mr. O'Toole. And if you disagree with them, blame us. Uh, please check out um, Embargoed anywhere you get your pod content. Please subscribe. Please you spread the give, word. Give a subscription as a holiday gift. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, a little stocking stuff or a subscription exactly. to Embargoed. It will. It won't cost you much. So uh, exactly. we would we would certainly recommend you considering that. But. Um, with that, let me. I'm going to do a quick, a very quick overview of the roadmap here. I'm not going to get into too much detail to spoil the fun, but running through um, the 10, we're going to do top 10 again in sort of in no particular order. Um, although we kind of have some things that tie together as we go, uh, so I'll run through the 10 issues that we're going to cover, and then maybe Tim and I'll reflect very briefly before we dive in. But um, so in order, here we go. We're gonna we're going to talk about hitting the reset button. Uh, you can all guess what that might mean. We're going to talk about some successful court challenges um, that maybe have something to do with the, the hitting of the reset button. We're going to talk about China, China, China. You know, if you're an embargo listener that you, you're never going to be, we're never going to skimp on China content. We're going to talk about the fact that there is no JCPOA POA 2.0 and probably never will be at this point. Uh, we're going to get into virtual currency and ransomware, Russia, we're going to talk about sort of the turbulent political times we're living in and how that has spawned some brand new sanctions programs and has perhaps um, expanded and revitalized some older sanctions programs. Uh, we're going to talk about the the uh, DPA for Huawei's CFO, which we covered um, not too long ago, but uh, hit on that once again. We're going to talk about what's going on with uh, Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, which this year on the sanctions front has not been a, a whole heck of a lot. And then we're going to focus. We're going to finish up by focusing on a couple of uh, thematic and substantive, um, you know, sort of uh, points of focus for U.S. foreign policy generally, but also on the sanctions front, um, namely anti-corruption, uh, democracy, and uh, human rights. And so, and then we'll maybe cover a few. Odds and ends at the end with some honorable mentions, but that is the roadmap. That's what we're going to cover today. Uh, and again, we're going to do this in lightning round fashion. So these are mostly topics. These are pretty much all topics that we've talked about at some point or another during the course of the year. 
So this will be familiar, but we do think as we take stock of what has transpired this year, an eventful year, no doubt, given that we began our year by reflecting on what had happened on the Capitol Hill on January 6th and the inauguration of President Biden and um, a lot of topsy-turvy events happening in January. And to think here we are, we've almost made it. We're two weeks away from the end of the year. Um, yeah, quite quite a year. And um, I will reiterate what I said last time. I am very, I am certainly looking forward to personally to turning the calendar to 2022. Um, and yeah, before we get started, Tim, any 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 other thoughts? I think if we had had to give our predictions for what would happen in 2021, um, remaining with a new variant of COVID that is kind of spreading like wildfire would not have been among our predictions as to the end of 2021. But I do hope that uh, 2022 turns out better, that there are no insurrections and uh, no more variants of concern. Yeah. In case anyone's wondering, we are on the record on embargoed as being anti-insurrection, anti-coup, pro-democracy, and anti-COVID. So just in yeah. case anyone's keeping tabs out there, I think right. those are, you, we're, we'll put our necks out as, as, as wholeheartedly supporting those, those positions. And, um, and yeah, agree with what Tim said. I don't, for those I don't know of that you we... enjoying a beverage at home, that's the scorecard. <laughs> Pro-democracy, anti-COVID, anti-insurrection. Yes. Uh, exactly. Anti-treason. So, um, with, without further delay, then we will pause for the lightning round sound effect at the outset, and we're going to get into our top 10 for the year. So number one, as I said, hitting the reset button. So what does that mean? I think, uh, those compliance nerds out there are very familiar with the concept of tone at the top when it comes to running your compliance programs. And I think that that is really what we're talking about here with the new administration taking over in January. Notably with the um, the Treasury review of U.S. sanctions policy, which we covered at some length in October when that was released, uh, with a number of the other actions that happened uh, sort of in the first few months of the Biden administration, jettisoning, jettisoning some um, programs that we were anticipating going away and some policies that we were um, anticipating going away. I'll let Tim comment on those because some of those are his favorites. But um you know, it is just, uh, it is, I think, in a meaningful way, we have seen, uh, certainly in the sanctions realm, but broad, more broadly, I think, in the foreign policy and international trade realm, you know, some of the tenants that we saw in the Treasury um, sanctions policy review, you know, hoping to achieve more clarity with the way that the U.S. is deploying this tool, hoping to assess and make sure that this is, that sanctions are being deployed when there is a, um, you know, it's fit for purpose. There's not just sort of a, um, you know, an aimless or undirected uh, attempt to deploy sanctions. Thinking about the impact assessment, both on the stated goals and also collateral impact that it has on um, on uh, sort of innocent bystanders and allied countries and the like, uh, working multilaterally with our allies and also, um, you know, making sure that this can be that our, our policy in the U.S. can be understood, enforced, and if needed, um, you know, revised. Uh, and I think that those are things that we were anticipating to some degree. But I think that um, to, in our view, I think that has pulled through um, in many different respects. But, you know, again, sort of using the OFAC or the Treasury Sanctions Policy Review is kind of the 
the lead talking point on that. I think you see that you we have seen that throughout not just the sanctions um, realm, but in other areas of international trade in the U.S. and foreign policy. And, you know, would anticipate that that's going to continue and pull through into 2022 and beyond. So with that, I'll stop and toss it to Tim. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with all that. I think very quickly, you know, one of the, the my biggest observation about kind of the reset button is that um, the, the four years that preceded 2021 were really a time where even sanctions policy and maybe even particularly sanctions policy was not was not done by consensus. I think before um, 2016 or from, you know, before 2016, that generally was true. Like, I, I don't think many of our sanctions policies were controversial. Most were bipartisan. Most to the extent that Congress passed on them, they would go through Congress by, you know, wide margins, sometimes unanimous margins. I think in the from 2017 to 2020, that wasn't quite true, at least in in, in many of the areas. And, and some of them we'll talk about, you know, in, in just a second because they were the subject of litigation. But but even so, I, I think that the collateral consequences, just to pick an example of sanctions programs, I think it has been widely there's been a wide consensus before uh, 2016 that humanitarian um, trade should not be the subject of sanctions and should not really be interfered with by sanctions and the agencies would go out of their way to try and stop that. I think that, um, you know, as its name suggests, maximum pressure, which was the policy for four years, was designed to kind of skirt at the margins of that. They didn't take on humanitarian trade directly, but there was a lot of humanitarian trade that was stopped during those four years, particularly in Iran, in Venezuela, um, in other sanctioned countries that the U.S. was interfering with, in fact, even if not in policy, that the, the current administration has pulled back on. And so I think that that it is much more of a sanctions by consensus. Um, sanctions is not nearly as controversial uh, a tool. And 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 I think that's in many ways a good thing because I think that these these only work if if we agree and our allies agree that they're a good policy and, and agree to to execute them. Yeah, and I think that's a good segue to topic number two, which are some successful court challenges, which are obviously notable in this space because we don't see that many of them. However, exactly. in late 2020 and early 2021, we saw quite a few of them, perhaps in response to maximum pressure and the, the way that the prior administration was handling its its business in the space. So I'll, I'll toss it to Tim to start us off on that. Yeah. So so one of the things that has been really consistent over administrations until the last four years had been that when sanctions were imposed, there was a process that there was an attempt to figure out uh, the you know whether the culpable party was responsible. And I'm not saying they always got it right. And I'm not even saying that they you know were as efficient as they think they are. But they were they were trying to be efficient and they were relatively efficient at identifying sanctions targets and targeting them for reasons that they could back up. I think that in the the, the successful court ta- challenges, and here we're talking about Xiaomi and and Luo Kong and and some of the other ones that were on the the uh, military list that was originally put together by the Department of Defense under the Trump administration under the the, the executive order that started this program about um, communist Chinese military companies. Th- those designations were 
clearly when challenged in court done in such an amateur fashion there there really was no thought put into them there when they would try to justify them there'd be a page memo and even in that page they would get facts wrong and have misspellings and it was just such a clown show i think for lack of a better term that uh those did become subject to to lawsuits i think in the same way i mean that policy was one that the biden administration continued it actually brought in ofac to do the designations and kind of fine-tuned at the edges but the the um, international criminal court sanctions, that was just a clown show of a policy. Like that was one that was just like pounding your fist on the table because you're mad at the international criminal court. But no one, I mean, had even conceived in, in my mind that they might be the subject of an executive order and an IEPA ban, which is why they had a tough time justifying it in court. Because, you know, once someone goes on the SDN list, dealing with them is almost impossible. And the idea that it was prohibited for U.S. persons to deal with investigators at the International Criminal Court. I mean, whether we have jurisdiction or not, the idea that you couldn't sit in a room with them without being worried that if you were telling them something that was useful to them, that you were providing them a service in violation of U.S. law was very problematic, which is why, um, you know, before the Biden administration scrapped the program, a court in New York had issued a preliminary injunction striking it down on First Amendment grounds. And I think that that sort of that those those lawsuits are are. They, they exemplify just how far out there the previous administration sanctions policy was in some areas. And I, I don't mean this as a partisan issue. I, I do think that sanctions are very, for the most part, very bipartisan. And there were laws that were passed in the Trump administration by Republican Congresses that, that President Trump threatened to veto. And I'm thinking of CATSA, really, when I when I talk about that as, as part of the last four years. But I think these latter programs were just either so poorly executed or so poorly conceived that they became the, the the topic of litigation and, and successful litigation, which we just don't see in this area that much. Yeah. Yeah. I would add to that one of our other favorite topics from 2020 that lingered on into early 2021, which is the tick, the TikTok ban and the WeChat ban uh, that was uh, thrust upon the Commerce Department to implement, which went down in flames in court as well. And I, I think the most interesting thing to, to make, to, so we, we discussed this at the time, which is, are these examples of are they all going to be outliers ultimately in the grand scheme of things because of the approach that was taken by the Trump administration and the fact that these were by all accounts kind of cram downs from the top to, to achieve to do something that the agency uh, maybe didn't even want to do but was kind of forced to do from the politicals at the top of the you know at the top of the heap and um, you know are we going to see any uh, replication of this going forward or any similar exposure that, you know, future designations or future executive orders or other things have in the same way? I think the answer is likely no, um, likely no. But the caveat to that is, look, there's no guarantee that we wouldn't, we won't end up with an administration that's going to take a similar approach again at some point in the future. So this is a bit of a roadmap for if and when that occurs. And secondly, there's good, pretty well-developed and pretty well-reasoned case law on this now that we have in a number of district courts uh, that gives a roadmap to many parties who might be now taking a more serious look or perhaps a more nuanced look at how they could challenge these things in the future, uh, in in not necessarily even in these programs, but in any other kind of IEPA-based action that uh you know the party's unhappy with so i think that is kind of the lasting legacy of this is that we do have that uh there's no there's no erasing that or getting away from that 
and so, you know, it'll be interesting to see sort of in the future whether there are new wrinkles that develop from this or how these cases get cited or used in the future um, by parties who might be on the wrong side of some kind of you know, government action that they, they feel is unjust and unsupported, perhaps. Yeah, I, I mean, I, and just one quick addition to that, because I agree, I think TikTok and WeChat are another good example of just kind of policies that were far enough out there that it's not surprised that, surprising that the current administration pulled back from them. I, I do think that on the litigation issue, those cases make law that, that kind of stands in contrast with what we thought the earlier law was. And that is that when you read a decision pre-2016 of a court reviewing um, OFAC policies or CFIUS policies or, or, or an entire executive order program set up under IEPA like the, the ICC policy, like the ICC you know, program was, what, what oozes off the page is the way the courts are deferential to them. I mean, it just reads like a different Administrative Procedure Act challenge or a different constitutional challenge in most of those cases than these did. You had a court that was was kind of peeling back the onion in a way that courts often don't do here. And once you once courts start doing that, I think they get more comfortable doing that, even if it's a different set of facts. Now, I'm not. I, I think these programs were so far out there as a legal matter that the courts you know, it wasn't that hard for them to do it here. But I, I will be interested to see now that they've done it in these cases, whether they take a closer look at some of the other actions that OFAC or CFIUS or or, um, or even the president takes with respect to, to other programs that are set up that seem to be on the margins or even are cl- less far less far out on the margins, but but are ones that, you know, might have problems. Yeah, so uh, let's let's leave that one behind for now. That's a fascinating one. Uh, let's move to, to story number three, which is China, China, China. Um, you know, not surprisingly, China remained at the fore of U.S. trade policy, U.S. sanctions policy. There, I would say, there were not any, uh, and and anybody who's listened to the twenty or so episodes we recorded this year and posted, I think there's China content on every single one of them. But by and large, but um, I, I wouldn't say that uh, as opposed to last year when we saw some pretty significant new developments like the Hong Kong program, the Xinjiang program, um, the uh, the military and user rule and, and use rule that, that's mostly targeted at China, the Huawei um, foreign direct product rule being expanded, those types of things. We didn't really see any big seismic shifts. I think it was largely more of the same. It's largely... And obviously, the the sort of feeling out process between the Biden administration and the Chinese government throughout this year, we we obviously discussed that quite a bit, and I think to some extent that's still happening. Uh, I I am proud to say that we were correct in sort of for, foretelling and predicting that the diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics from the U.S. was coming because that is now in fact happening. Uh, so it'll be you know that's just a little interesting kind of asterisk slash footnote to see sort of how that impacts U.S.-China relations. Um, but obviously Taiwan is kind of one big area that we talked about some where I think there are there is kind of brewing um, gathering storm clouds and we're not quite sure how that's going to play out going forward. I think by and large I would say that the experience that that Tim and I have had with you know discussing. China-specific trade compliance issues with our clients is that, you know, this continues to be far and away kind of the number one concern that everybody has uh, in terms of how they manage their 
relationships in China, whether it's supply chain related, customer related, or anything else. And it continues to be kind of the the big issue that everybody has to wrestle with. Um, I, I would also add as a uh, as a um, a shout out to our our good friends uh, Richard Mojica and Nate Langford who joined us on an episode. The you know the the business and human rights aspects of dealing with China and the increased uh, and continued CBP enforcement on the WROs and other things targeted at certain um, products coming out of China is it is a massive issue that we are seeing um, you know frequently as well and so these things all tie together there's there is still even again even though I don't I don't think that we can say that there was any sort of seismic event that happened with respect to China this year it continues to dominate and to be I think the number one biggest kind of substantive and certainly geographic issue on the US front not surprisingly across the board with respect to trade compliance. So yeah, I mean that is another it, it is it, it, I think China exemplifies what we were saying in the last segment about how normally um sanctions and export controls is a very consensus driven bipartisan subject. China, the only thing it's the only thing that Congress can agree on right now is that China, we're we need to impose more pain on China or we need to erect more barriers to protect ourselves from China. Yeah. And and I'd say there's probably 75 to 80% overlap between what Biden has done in China and what Trump it was doing in China. I think, you know, some of the crazy programs like the the Chinese military companies or at least the the way that it was crazily conceived at the, have been at the cleaned up have been cleaned, been cleaned up. up. And, and, yeah. And yeah. and then I do think that there is more in the Biden administration and and we'll talk about this in some of the other segments too, but the Biden administration has really focused trade policy on human rights in a way that the Trump administration didn't, or at least didn't didn't do it to the same extent. I mean, you know, global Magnitsky came into play under Trump, and um and and so you know, corruption-based sanctions came into play during the Trump administration, and a lot of the stuff that the Xinjiang program came into play during the Trump administration. Um, the focus on the the focus on uh, Hong Kong came into play during the Trump administration. So all of that has continued in the Biden administration. I think there's been, you know, at the margins an increased focus on that stuff. But on China, the policy really, when you, you know, when you separate out that 10% of kind of the the weird stuff and the 10% that the Biden administration has probably doubled down on some of the human rights issues that the Trump administration um, also was concerned with and imposed sanctions programs for, it's really a lot, it's the, the continuity is pretty shocking for two presidents who on the surface could not seem more different. Yeah, I will say also, um, we largely expected that. I think right. our discussions around the time of the transition were that there is not going to be drastic change when it comes to China policy. Uh, and that has exactly that has been the case. And I, I you know, again, don't expect that there's going to be big shifts or a big drop off. And if anything, it will continue to sort of expand, uh, you know, kind of organically over time as as we're sort of seeing it progress uh, now. So we could talk about China for another hour. That's not right. in the spirit of the lightning round fashion of this episode. So not we'll, be lightning quick. So we will stop there and uh, let's go to, to story number four, which is JCPOA 2.0 is dead. Long live JCPOA 2.0. Right. I mean, so this is one, this is a frustrating story because it, 
they ran on this issue, each of them, and, and they were supposed to be at polar opposites. But as we get to the end of 2021, Iran policy is almost exactly the same as it was at the end of 2020. And that is that the renewed maximum pressure sanctions that were imposed by the Trump administration are still in play. The Biden administration has committed to return to the JCPOA, but they, they need Iran to commit to, the, to, to make the nuclear commitments. Iran, at least publicly, has said they're ready to make the nuclear commitments, but only after the sanctions are lifted. And we've been at an impasse pretty much since the beginning of the Biden administration. And we've talked about this, you know, on on the podcast a number of times, a ticking clock is a bad thing for these negotiations, because as we get closer to 2022 and an election year, and as you get closer to the end of the JCPOA, at least nominally each each day that passes, you get closer to the temporary suspension of commitments. Some of them end as soon as 2025. Um, you know, the the chances for a deal become slimmer and slimmer. And what we're, I think, what I'm hearing, and I I think what you're hearing is the chances are, you know, it, it's pretty much dead. Yeah, and I mean, I think the striking thing is, and again, for for anybody who listens to us regularly, will know. I think we had an episode titled is JCPOA 2.0 upon us or something like that back in the early part of this year, because it certainly looked like, and all the signals seemed to be there that this was going to happen. And we know, we know, and have heard for a fact that, you know, the, the gears of the U S government were, were ready to go and we're starting to think about guidance to, you know, and taking people off the SDN list and all the steps that need to be, would have need to be taken for the sanctions relief piece of that. And then it just kind of hit a, it hit a lull and then kind of hit a wall. And then with the, with uh, Raisi coming in in Iran and everything that, and the continued efforts to, um, you know, with enrichment in Iran uh, and the games that are being played with the nuclear inspectors, I, I think at this point, it, I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's a 0% chance that it ever happens, but it's, it is really, really low. It is probably less than 10% in my view as to whether this, this could ever happen at this point. It's so astounding to me because you have all the parties who I, I actually genuinely believe would like back into the deal for different reasons. But I mean, we have all the allies, all of the companies countries that were, you know, parties to the JCPOA to begin with, that include Russia and China, they they all want the JCPOA to go back into play. Our administration ran on the on the JCPOA coming back into play. And Iran, for different reasons, I think, I think Iran economically, it would like to have the sanctions lifted. Um, and, and I think they want it nearly bad enough to make the sort of concessions that they made originally in the JCPOA, but it's not going to happen. And I, I, it is kind of astounding that when everybody wants back in that the, and, and everybody's in agreement that the deal should go back into play, that it won't. But I, I'm now convinced that that's probably what's going to happen. Yeah. So with that, let's leave, let's, let's throw a little bit of dirt, maybe not all of the dirt, but most of the dirt on JCPOA 2.0. And let's move to story number five, which is virtual currency and ransomware. This is a topic that we've covered quite a bit and in part because it has become a priority issue, not just for OFAC, but for the, for the justice department as well. Uh, I think this is, you know, it's kind of fascinating to see because there's been this kind of confluence of factors that have led to this, which is, and we've seen obviously, and we've talked about quite a bit, the guidance that's been issued on 
the compliance guidance that's been issued joint um, jointly across agencies in the USG uh, with respect to dealing with uh, virtual currency, with respect to ransomware attacks and ransom and potential ransomware payments. And I think it's the two, it's the sort of rise of virtual currency platforms generally uh, that has been kind of steadily increasing. And I don't want to say that it kind of, you know, uh, jumped the shark this year or hit a tipping point, but it's certainly matured to a level that uh, we are seeing and hearing about it more. It's becoming a, a much higher priority uh, concern for U.S. regulators across the board, in, you know, not just in, again, not just Justice and OFAC, but also SEC and other uh, agencies in other areas as well. So there's that piece. And then there's also the the ransomware epidemic and the ransomware attack epidemic and the fact that there were some high profile ransomware payments that were made in connection with some of these attacks earlier this year, which I think again, kind of aligned to make this a bit of a moment for these issues. And of course, DOJ has now stood up a, you know, a, a task force essentially to to prioritize this. There have been a few high profile uh, prosecutions that have been announced recently in connection with these types of attacks and actors who have been working on the back end to, to sort of facilitate payments via virtual currency for ransomware actors and malicious cyber actors. So I think this is just in some ways, I think this is this is here to stay. In my view, this is not going to be something that kind of fades as a fad. I think everybody needs to understand what you're dealing with here, and to the extent anybody out there is not yet educating themselves on how to think about these issues and how to interact with these these issues, whether it be just being prepared for a ransomware attack, what to do if you are subject to a ransomware attack, what to do if you are uh, having to interface with, um, you know. A, a virtual virtual wallet or a virtual currency exchange or start transacting in um, in virtual currencies, you know, I would certainly encourage anyone out there to be, you know, school themselves up on the compliance aspects of that, not just, you know, not just from the sanctions standpoint, but across the board and to and to really be opening, getting your eyes open to the, all of the kind of the, the pros and cons of that and all the all the risks that go along with that as well. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think when we get to the year in 2022, this will still be on the agenda because I think you know as we've seen this year, OFAC has moved on this issue from a like you know be careful um, to a you know you better you better talk to law enforcement before you make the payments because if you make payments and haven't talked to law enforcement and they go to sanction people, we're going to be really mad. Whereas if you've talked to law enforcement and you know you make a mistake you're going to be fine, which is not exactly what they've said, but the gist of what they've said. Um, they've evolved on that. But the, the the trick, as I see it, is, you know, it, 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 if, they, if you can't prevent ransomware attacks from big infrastructures like, you know, gas pipelines, it's very hard for me to see how, you know, it, it would be in everyone's interest to then just say, you know, to deter ransomware attacks, just shut down the gas network in the southeast of the United States for months or years just to show the ransomware attackers that we're not going to give in to them. So the payments sometimes are, you know, un unfortunately necessary. And how you make those payments is, I think, going to be the subject of continuing discussion or unless, you know, somehow some one comes up with a magic bullet that stops these attacks altogether from working. Right. I mean, the, the USG is definitely now putting its thumb on the scale of don't pay, whereas right. I think they were trying to be a little more agnostic pr previously. And now it's kind of squarely on the don't pay side of things. And if you do pay, be aware that you could get yourself in a lot of hot water. So 
it is fascinating how that's evolved over the last several years from the time when I was in government talking about these issues as they were becoming more, uh, you know, pronounced and, and more serious. And, and so it'll be interesting to see where it goes, goes from here, but definitely not something that's going away. And so speaking of which, good segue, because story yep. number six is a hotbed of these issues and that's our that's our friends in russia and so let's 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 get into russia for a minute well so let's get into russia so russia the russian sanctions exist from 2014 because uh the russian government under mr putin um invaded ukraine uh basically uh, uh has now um has is controls the territory in Crimea um has occupied Crimea depending upon you know whether you take the Russian side or the US side the, the Russians that say they have have liberated Crimea uh the rest of the world would say occupied but in any event that's the history and history you know past is prologue and so what we end 2021 with is russian forces kind of massed along the the ukraine border uh and by many accounts prepared to to invade again and so a lot of us have been giving thought to well okay so say that happens what happens to sanctions and i think you know for 2022 it won't surprise me if the worst happens in in ukraine to see you know, an expansion of the SSI sanctions, maybe some of the sectors that are currently subject of the SSI sanctions, like energy and finance, they they either become SDNs or, um, for example, in the energy sector, the sanctions only apply to certain oil projects, you know, offshore, deep water, Arctic, um, and shale. And, and those sanctions could be expanded to other projects that have Russian input. Um, there could be those energy sectors are mostly SSIs. They could become SDNs. The same with the Russian banks. I mean, there's a lot of ways to increase pressure on Russia by moving companies and individuals from the SSI list to the SDN list. In the same way, you know, there's a list of oligarchs. You know, how how thoroughly that list was put together back in 2017 under Katza has been the subject of some debate. But all of the oligarchs weren't sanctioned and or weren't put on the SDN list. In fact, barely, barely of any were. of them were. Barely any right. of them were. And yeah. so that's another area where you'd expect to see kind of some expansion. And then you'd expect to, to potentially see the sanctions move to other sectors of the Russian economy because there are at least some executive orders that would allow that that haven't really been put into force at this point. Yeah, I think I'm going to go out on a limb, which is not much of a limb to say that uh, if we're if anybody's out there betting on an area of U.S. sanctions policy that might get a little spicier in 2022, Russia's a good bet. Uh, and, lar- and for the reason that Tim cited, the, the military buildup on the Ukrainian border is, you know, that is literally and figuratively a powder keg. And who knows how that's going to play out. Um, and that's not even accounting for all the other things that have already happened this year with the U.S. trying to reassert a little bit of backbone with respect to Russia that perhaps was was lost in the prior administration. And that's pushing back against malicious cyber activity, election interference, of course, um, you know, the treatment of Alexei Navalny, Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2. Yeah, all of those things. Right. And we saw a number of actions. We saw a new executive order. We saw other things throughout the year that went to addressing those issues. And now we're back to sort of first principles and we're back to Ukraine again. And, you know, yeah, I, I just think this is, you know, again, I mentioned earlier that I think China remains kind of the most, in some ways, the most challenging, most fraught kind of uh, geographic area country to do business, certainly for U.S. companies or, you, you know, companies that have any kind of U.S. 
um, you know, presence whatsoever or, or have to comply with U.S. laws. But I mean, Russia is a close second in many ways and it could and the program in Russia, the sanctions program is already fairly complex and could get more complex depending on what plays out in the next few months. So. So, yeah, that's, you know, keep keep your eye on Russia and um, yeah, who knows what's coming in 2022 there. Yeah, I mean, in some ways it could get easier. They could just embargo Russia, but I, right. I don't think we're. I don't think which would make it a lot simpler to to navigate because you you mostly couldn't. But but I think as we that's, as we that's know unlikely. as we know because of the deep economic ties, I think that's probably not ever going right. to happen. But uh, same with China. But um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. It could could get interesting. Um, so let's leave Russia and let's move to story number seven, which. In my outline, in our outline, we 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 um, we we uh, termed turbulent times equal lots of new sanctions programs and lots of new sanctions uh, period. So, uh, indeed, we have spent a lot of time this year talking about um, we've talked about far too many coups and attempted coups, and we've talked about uh, sort of you know political um, you know malfeasance, stealing elections, and anti-democratic activities and um, you know, actions that are just, you know, blatantly contrary to human rights and, and humanitarian concerns. And as a result, we've ended up with a new sanctions program in Burma. We've ended up with a new Ethiopia related sanctions program. We've ended up with obviously the situation in Afghanistan has not led to a new program per se, but there has had to be a lot of focus on how to deal with that um, in with Taliban regaining control of the government there. Um, you know, Yemen, Belarus, uh, and on and on and on. There's many other um, examples here. So I think um, in addition to our kind of old favorites, so to speak, I think there's just been, and again, this kind of flies in the face of the idea that the new sort of quote unquote new approach under the Biden administration to how sanctions are going to be administered means less activity or less compliance concerns, not necessarily. <laughs> There's still a lot going on. There's still a lot of new programs, a lot of new consideration, most of which, of course, are just a byproduct of world events and political events that are completely out of the control of the U.S. government. But nevertheless, there is a lot that has happened this year and a lot that has changed this year as a result and um, certainly has kept us on our toes throughout the year. And I know many of our clients and many of our friends who our fellow trade nerds who spend a lot of time worrying about these things and, th and talking about these things as well. So that's really a, just a kind of remark on that because there has been in some ways a, an astounding amount of, you know, activity and churn and developments that have led to new programs, expanded programs, revitalized programs, uh, you know, across the board. Yeah. What, the only thing I have to add to that is like in a lot of these programs, I think the new administration, they're not that new anymore since we're a year in, but the Biden administration has has tried to um, gauge the sanctions to prevent collateral consequences in a way that we didn't see as much in the past administration. I think Yemen is a good example. They came in and really changed the way that the Trump administration had gone after the the what the you know the, one of the the fighting parties in Yemen the Trump had put them on the SDN list as a group and the Biden administration pulled back from that it, you see it in Afghanistan Burma um, Ethiopia is a, another great example of of how they tried to tweak 
the the sanctions to try and prevent collateral consequences. We'll see if it works because I think they're trying to get humanitarian aid through in all these countries because they're all war-torn countries that have just come off a coup. Whether or not that succeeds is going to be another question, but they, they're trying in a way that the, that the previous administration really didn't seem to be. And they're trying to change behavior and they're trying to marshal uh, multilateral support from allies to actually affect change in pretty much all of the places that we mentioned. So, right, time will tell. We've said this over and over again. Time will tell whether this is going to work. We're not sort of touting this as a success necessarily. We're just acknowledging that it is a slightly different approach. And, you know, the proof will be in the pudding, so to speak, once we have a little more data and a little more time to see how this all plays out. So anyway, let's leave that one behind. Let's now move back to the courtroom. And let's go to, again, one of our favorite topics in a, in a, in a, a resolution that was, you know, ha, has, has already started to have some ripple effects as we predicted. And, and I think we'll continue to in the future. And that's the, the DPA that was reached that allowed um, Huawei CFO um, Meng Wanzhou to leave Canada and return to China. Yeah. Talk about kind of a, a, a letdown of an ending, um, but, but one that I think was pretty much inevitable in this set of circumstances. And I'm, I'm sure that the biggest beneficiary of this settlement is Canada and that they're very relieved that this all took place. I mean, it started with this dramatic arrest of the CFO in Huawei as she was transiting Canada um, on a flight back to China. Uh, and the, you know, so that she was she was arrested at the request of the U.S. government, so that she be, could be extradited to the U.S. to face charges in New York um, related to to violations of the Iran sanctions. But there were also claims that she had mis misled um, a financial institution about the business that Huawei was doing in Iran. Um, and there were extradition proceedings that seemed to be taking quite a while, and and some of the issues were were relatively serious. Um, and so uh, in that setting, um, you know, and, and also I guess I should mention the fact that China had uh, arrested two Canadian citizens after the, uh, after the, um, after the, or the, the arrest of Mrs. Meng and was basically holding them and trying them uh, until the, the resolute, or until the charges against Mrs. Meng were resolved or the extradition proceedings were resolved. So you essentially had Canada um, conducting extradition proceedings with a gun to its head. Um, all of that resolved uh, earlier this year when Mrs. Meng entered into a deferred prosecution agreement, the terms of which is she got to go home to China. She's not supervised in any way, but she signed a four-page statement of facts that admitted to bank fraud. Um, and they can use that against her if she ever uh, violates her DPA and, and becomes subject to arrest, uh, but given that it's not supervised and that she's in China, and I would guess unlikely to leave to a country with an extradition treaty with the U.S., um, at least while that DPA is in place, I, I think that the chances that we en hear anything more about this DPA going forward are close to zero. Yeah, I think the to me, the biggest takeaway, and we talked about this at the time that the deal was reached, is you know the statement that she signed is presumably now going to be a centerpiece of the U the United States government's case against Huawei the company which is still pending and how that gets put into play is a fascinating question and what can be made of that is a even more fascinating question uh I think a couple things just kind of food for thought here I have no insight on this other than my own musings but um with the new kind of corporate enforcement push at DOJ, which is well acknowledged and, and has been touted 
um, from DOJ leadership in, in the um, in the past few months. I'm I'm very I remain very curious to see whether if there is a re resolution reached with Huawei, which no guarantee there will be because they certainly have not shown an inclination to um, to negotiate meaningfully with the U.S. government. Will they insist on a monitor, and how extensive will that resolution be? Uh, I think that's a that's a fascinating question. Number one. Number two. One thing that we haven't talked about in a long time, which I will throw out there, is could OFAC put Huawei on the SDN list? I mean, that is in some ways the nuclear option, more more punishing in some ways than a monitorship and, and whatever criminal penalty they would have to pay, monetary penalty they'd have to pay, obviously. Um, you know, with the entity listing and the expansion of the entity listing to cover, you know, the the and expand the foreign direct product rule. I think around that time last year, we we speculated whether or not that that was in play. And and honestly, under the prior administration, I think it was it probably was being discussed whether that would ever be um, palatable to the current administration. I don't know, but in the in the event that Huawei was not going to play ball in the uh, in the ongoing prosecution. And if there was really a desire to kind of take Huawei out at the knees, even more so than has been done to date with the entity listing because of the threat they pose, according to the government, to U.S. national security, SDN list, right? I mean, that's that's the nuclear option. It, I, I think still that, remains a, that remains a fascinating question. I think people should, you know, look, again, I'm not handicapping the likelihood of that. I think it's still probably very unlikely that that were ever to happen, but We'll put it out there and, you know, don't don't quote us on having any insight onto that other than our own, um, you know, our, our own just kind of wild ideas. But, um, yeah, I think that's, again, just sort of a, a fascinating kind of connected point with with the resolution with um, with um, Mrs. Meng in terms of what this could foretell for Huawei and how that case gets resolved or doesn't. Yeah, I mean, we're not there yet, but I, I definitely could see a scenario in which, you know, some leverage is needed over Huawei and that become, that gets put back on the table. But um, yep. all yep. right, so that's something that I think will be talked about next year. Let's talk about yes. three countries that we haven't talked about at all this year. Yes. So the so-called the John Bolton Troika of tyranny, Venezuela, Cuba and Nicaragua, which were, was on the agenda last year with good reason, because there had been a lot of action last year. And we spent a lot of time at the early part of this year thinking about and talking about whether the Biden administration was going to really deviate policy-wise from how it's going to treat these countries, especially Cuba and Venezuela, which have been at the fore of U.S. sanctions policy and enforcement for the last several years. And as Tim said, things have been relatively quiet. There have not there have been no seismic changes. There has there has been very little that has been um, done here. And I think that that is interesting from a for a couple of reasons. Number one, I, other than I would say, when we got to, when we saw the actions that were taken in connection with the Cuban government crackdown on pro-democratic protesters, Agreed. we did see that, we did talk about that. We did wonder whether that was a prelude to more. There hasn't really been more yet that has been done in that regard, but certainly that's an area and an issue to keep an eye on. But with respect to Venezuela in particular, which I would say in many ways was being held up almost, you know, as co-equal in the, you know, the sort of on the naughty list with with like Iran under the Trump administration, 
and the actions that were being taken clearly meant to try to pressure Maduro to, um, you know, to sort of his power base to crumble, which just did not work. And so the approach has certainly been the rhetoric continues to be tough, but the approach certainly has not been a maximum pressure approach with Venezuela. Uh, and so, you know, other than a couple of instances where former Maduro, uh, you know, advisors and, and cronies have been in the news for their criminal proceedings. And we talked about the extradition um, recently and, and the reaction that they had there uh, in Venezuela. But otherwise, things have been relatively quiet and we have not heard much, Sarah. So I guess I throw to you, Tim, what um, what do you make of that? And what do we think is is coming, given that we've had a relatively quiet first year on on this front across the board with these countries? Yeah, I think that the approach to all three countries is pretty much the same, which is they the, the administration would prefer just not to do anything in those countries unless events force them to do otherwise. So I think that describes what happened with the, you know, when the pro-democracy um, protests started and then the Cuban government cracked down, we saw some action from the administration there when, you know, a close ally of President Maduro is extradited. Um, we saw action there, but I think that was an extradition that was um, you know, I, I think we don't know all of the facts behind that extradition. And I think that that's kind of, you can put that into a box and say that was not kind of a policy development. That was just an opportunistic development. And in Nicar Nicaragua, I think the same way. I mean, there's a little bit of action there from for, in, in terms of enforcing sanctions enforcement, but it's very minimal. It does adding, not... adding, to the, adding to the list of designations, you know, kind of incrementally or sort of periodically, but yeah, beyond and that. And none of the much. rhetoric and none of the rhetoric that we saw. I mean, from the no. Trump administration, these three were equated as, you know, you know, communist havens and and real enemies of the of U.S. democracy in the in the Biden administration. There's none of that rhetoric um, and really not, not very much action. I mean, Venezuela enforcement under Trump was it, it was close to Iran in terms of the naughty list. And it's just you know, that's not, it's not the same thing now. You just don't see much and hear much about Venezuela. I suspect that there are things going on behind the scenes, but I think it's much, the, those countries have been much more left to diplomacy, except, you know, when circumstances force otherwise than they were under the Trump administration. Right. No, I think that's a good way to, to think of it. So, you know, fascinating to see what may materialize going forward with, with those countries, which are obviously relatively close neighbors of the U.S. and, and, are quite consequential in terms of a, a whole host of different issues um, and interests that the U.S. has in the in the region. But um, yeah, not I think maybe a little surprising that it has been so quiet in the first year under the Biden administration. So we we shall see going forward. Um, with that, we are now we're flying through here by our standards, and we're at story number ten, which is as I. As I said at the outset, it's kind of the um, the flip of, you know, if we started with the hitting the reset button and the kind of the shift in the philosophical approach to how sanctions are administered, this is kind of the shift perhaps or the, uh, you know, redefining of the substantive um, lodestar for some of the sanctions administration and enforcement and um, specifically relating to anti-corruption uh, democracy and humanitarian rights. So I will, um, human rights. So I will throw that to Tim to chime in on that. Yeah. I mean, I think we've, we've kind of touched in it already, but I think if you could, could have a theme for the Biden administration sanctions policy in its first year, and then compare it to the Trump administration, I think that the, the big difference would be the emphasis of the Biden administration on 
anti use of sanctions for anti-corruption purposes, use of sanctions for human rights purposes, use of sanctions for um, you know pro-democracy purposes. That's not to say that 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 wasn't done in the Trump administration. It was, but I think that the emphasis and and the focus on that as a basis for sanctions is is new and different, and and really is what I would say distinguishes the the new administration's policy one year in. Yeah, it is a tonal shift, a marked tonal shift, I think from what we saw in the last administration. I would also point to, and I, I, you know, I'm not quite sure, I can't quite recall what, how much time we spent talking about this at the time, but obviously in June of this year, there was the memorandum that was issued by the White House that was, you know, kind of declaring anti-corruption and fighting corruption globally was a core national security interest of the United States, which frankly, has always been the case, but the idea that something that sort of high profile and pronounced would be um, would be released is is notable. And uh, and so and as Tim said, you know, with global Magnitsky authorities at the disposal of OFAC, that is a big stick to to, you know, go after um, to go after you know, folks globally. And so I, I do think not just, again, that's not to say that there was not anything being done on on these fronts under the prior administration. There certainly was. I think we may have observed and others may have observed that perhaps cynically that w- that was being done perhaps with a with a bit of a, a cynical edge to it um, and, and not necessarily as a core kind of tenant of the administration's um, policies. But I think now clearly in addition to all the other things that we talked about with respect to, you know, the again, the usual suspects, the China's, the Iran's of the world I, and and sort of, um, you know, anti-proliferation and um, anti-terrorism and other types of core national security tenets. I think these additional bases have been elevated to some degree, at least in the messaging and the rhetoric, if not in the execution. I do think in the execution as well. well and I think that that is something that we should expect to see continue going forward. Well, I was I, I wanted to say something about that. So, so I, I can give you the anecdotal, but I think maybe in 2022 we will give you the the data. We can have some of our crack associates that work with us here in our in our trade group um, put together some statistics because it sure seems to me as we get the you know the emails from OFAC. Uh, periodically, a couple times a week, sometimes more than a couple times a week, that when I when I read them as they come in, there's a lot more of them that are global Magnitsky sanctions. I, I like I, I I get the sense that this is happening two or three times a week now, um, in a way that just wasn't happening under previously. And I, I haven't done the data, and I think we should because I think it would be interesting to see you know how how many global Magnitsky sanctions have been imposed um, in the last year compared to how many were imposed in the year before that. I, I my sense is it's a lot more, but I, I I'd like to see the data, and in 2022 we'll we'll go from anecdote to data, which is usually a, a good way to, to 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 assess situations. We are a data driven operation. We are not a um, let's pull. Let's pull this out of the clouds operation here uh, at Miller and Chevalier. So, uh, so with that, that's our top ten. Um, so honorable mentions. Any sort of odds and ends that you want to mention that we didn't that we didn't cover in depth? Um, any any topics? Any issues? Any countries? Anything else? No, I mean, I you know we haven't talked about North Korea. We haven't talked about Syria. There's some enforcement going on in both of those places, but I think that's a, a topic for next year. Let's let's leave it at that. Yeah, I'll, I'll just mention two things real quick. So one I mentioned, which is kind of the the DOJ um, 
you know, enforcement focus, which they have, they have, they, in addition to um, some of the other pronouncements that have been made on sort of general corporate crime, there have been some statements made by senior leadership at DOJ about um, the strong pipeline of sanctions and export controls cases that they're in the process of investigating and prosecuting. So I would keep an eye on that. Uh, there's, you know, frankly, there's always a pretty long pipeline there. So I don't know how different that is, but the, the, Messaging is certainly suggesting that there is going to be ample resources put behind trying to bring some more of those cases and publicize those cases. So keep an eye on that. And then interestingly, just this week, I will just mention this as kind of a final thought, a new executive order that came out relating to um, the illicit drug trade, which is um, not a new program. It's kind of filling gaps in that uh, are you know, already covered by the Kingpin Act and related authorities and some of the other counter narcotics authorities that exist for OFAC to deploy. But um, this is largely, if you read any of the messaging on this, this is largely meant to um, help counteract the uh, effects of the opio opioid crisis. And so it's sort of an interesting development. I mean, again, just sort of underscores the fact that, you know, sanctions authorities and IEPA based authorities are kind of limitless in some ways that they can be deployed and um, used to, uh, you know, combat just about any problem that is deemed to be a national security uh, threat to the United States. And this is kind of another example of that just just announced this week, just, uh, a, a, you know, initial set of designations related to that. So if folks aren't following that, I would certainly encourage you to to take a quick look at that, but, um, you know, another kind of fascinating, you know, footnote, uh, that kind of plays into the other things we've seen this year and talked about today. Food for thought for next year. Food for thought for next year. Okay. So with that, I think we are wrapped, uh, for 2021 and, um, it has been a wild ride, but, um, Mr. Atul, it was a pleasure to do this with you. And, um, very happy that I have you to talk about this stuff with on whether on air or off air uh, <laughs> to help uh, to help sort sort out the thornier issues uh, that we have to deal with on a daily basis. But um, to everybody out there, hope everyone is going to get some rest. Uh, whatever holidays you celebrate, have a happy holiday season, have a happy new year. And we look forward to coming back to see you all again in 22. Until then, stay safe um, and stay sanctions free. Yeah, um, I, I also wanted to say it really has been, you know, a pleasure to talk with you about these sort of things over the past year. I'm glad I have you as a friend and colleague, Brian. Um, and if people who are listening thought that we talked for a long time on on these podcasts, they should hear our discussions off these podcasts because because this is the edited version. Um, anyhow, stay safe <laughs> for everybody. Thanks, everyone. Bye.